Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Alan Branch to the podcast. Dr. Branch serves as professor of Christian ethics here at Midwestern Seminary. He also serves as a research fellow in Christian ethics for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's an accomplished author, having published multiple books, including his most recent work, 50 Ethical Questions, Biblical Wisdom for Confusing Times. Dr. Branch, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, look, it's light to have you in the studio today and um, to get to talk about this topic, the pastor and ethics, and really building the conversation from your recent book entitled 50 Ethical Questions, Biblical Wisdom for Confusing Times, out with Lexham Press. And so I've looked forward to this conversation for several weeks. But before we get to that, give us a word of update on yourself and your family and your ministry these days. Well, my wife and I have been married for 33 and a half years, and we've married away both our daughters in about a year apart. So I hope the book sells really well. But That's uh, right. That's right. <laughs> uh, but I have two fine son-in-laws that uh, we love very much and, and uh, three grand dogs. My wife is a hospital administrator here in Kansas City. Uh, wow, COVID was really exhausting on her team. She manages the case managers at her hospital. And uh, so we're really glad that COVID has, has reached a bottom. And I've been preaching a lot and speaking in a lot of different places and had some really good opportunities to talk about transgenderism in particular. I've been invited a number of places to speak about that. So we're talking today, again, about your book and really building a conversation out from your book. And I guess let me begin just by asking, what is the genesis of the book or what was the genesis? What prompted you to write this book? There are several wonderful Christian ethics textbooks out, several of them quite expansive. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, pushing a thousand page, John Frame, again, pushing a thousand pages. Ken Magnuson, who's now head of ETS, he has a wonderful ethics textbook. It, it's pretty robust and substantive. Ken Wright at um, Talbot has a wonderful ethics textbook. Uh, your daughter's used it in the undergraduate ethics class here. She loved your class, by the way. Yeah, well, both of them were in there. Uh, and then Dan Heimbach has one coming out very soon with Rodman and Holman. That's going to be really good. I'm really looking forward to this book by Heimbach. But all those are, are intimidating, I'm afraid, for the average church person in the pew. So I wrote something that is easily digestible for the average church person, 50 ethical questions. Each chapter is about 1,000 to 1,500 words. And the idea was to write something that the average person could pick up and wouldn't be intimidating. If they took an interest in the topic, they could move on to some of these other more substitute books and dig deeper. So the subtitle is Biblical Wisdom for Confusing Times. What makes our times confusing? <laughs> well, denial of the gender binary. How about that? Um, radical moral autonomy, the evaluation of marriage. I know this is said a lot, but 1973's Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions were major, major thresholds, and it did change the culture a great, great deal, and it changed the way people think about right and wrong. I actually agree with Mother Teresa when she said the greatest destroyer of peace in the culture is abortion, because when you can destroy innocent life in the womb, it says a lot about what you think is a culture. And it's no coincidence that Roe v. Wade came six years after the summer of love in San Francisco, because abortion is a brutal coping mechanism for... Um, for failed contraception and sexual immorality. And that's what makes it confusing times. That's what we're, we're living. And a lot of the transgender chatter that's going on today is really the final outworking in its latest, latest uh, example of the sexual revolution. I don't know what's going to come next. 
So give us a sense of the arc of your ministry. When did you first surrender to ministry? I was at a, a revival led by uh, an evangelist whom I hold in very high regard. His name was Perry Neal. He's an old-fashioned Southern Baptist evangelist and a great guy. He won a lot of people to Christ in his life. And on Wednesday night at the revival, I, the Lord had been working in my heart for some time. I was dating Lisa, and uh, she did not come with me to that night at the revival and after the service, I approached our associate pastor, Tony Samples, told him I felt called to preach. I went to Lisa's house after the service, and I sat down with her, and I said, I, I think God's calling me to preach. And she indicated that she felt that as well, and she'd already felt that. The next night, on Thursday night of the revival, I presented myself to the church, and I, I was truly blessed. My pastor, Harry Michael, was a great guy, and he was just the best friend I ever had in this world. And he took me under his wing and taught me so much and had some really, really mature Christian adults in the church that taught me a great deal. And I was in a really good situation to get trained while I finished my college education. So then you're sensing a call to the ministry mid-1980s? It was 1988. Okay, 1988. And you completed your Ph.D. at Southeastern Seminary in ethics. When? 2000. Okay. So when, between 88 and 2000, when did you begin to think in explicit kind of ethical categories, not merely right and wrong, but I may want to devote myself to studying this, to teaching it one day? Well, when I look back in college, I had a strong interest in a lot of issues related to the sexual revolution and Roe v. Wade. So that was on my mind. But I got to college, I had a, um, a biblical ethics class that really got me thinking about these things. And then I took my ethics, my Christian ethics class that all MDF students take with Dr. Heimbach. And he's such a provocative thinker, and he's so very, very good. And as I thought and prayed about what I wanted to do, I looked at getting a PhD in bioethics at the University of Tennessee. I was not accepted to that program. But uh, Southeastern was starting their ethics program, and I enjoyed working with Dr. Heimbach so much. And uh, we chatted, and it looked like a good fit, and that's what I did. So then, let's say roughly 30 years, early 90s, you're a seminary student, thinking more intensely in these categories. So over the past 30 years, give us a sense of how the issues and challenges confronting Christians and confronting churches, how that's morphed. Wow, how it's morphed. Well, I think the culture has has reached a point where they're even being inconsistent with themselves and they know it. And let's talk about women's athletics if we can. So feminists were making common calls with the LGBTQ community in the 80s and 90s for a lot of different reasons. But now that that bond is breaking. Let me try to give an example. I looked something up last week, which is, I think, really interesting. The women's world record in the 400 meters open is set in 1985 by an East German athlete. It's almost certain she was on performance-enhancing drugs. It's about 47 and a half seconds. The state record for teenage boys in Kansas, which is not a large state as far as population, is about 46 and a half seconds. It was set 20 years ago. So a teenage boy in Kansas read a, ran a second faster than the fastest woman on the world, and she was on the juice. So there are basic differences between males and females. And I think what we're seeing is really just the radical unraveling. And even the ideological left is splintering into different groups. The one thing they all agree on is we loathe evangelical Christians. That's the, right. one, that's the one thing on which they agree. But I think just the, the absurdity of denying basic things like this and also the reinvention of language and transgenderism has driven that very much. That common terms that would, we would use, he and she, or even plural pronouns like they, are getting pushed to the breaking point that if you really follow these rules, it would be difficult to have a coherent conversation with someone. I mean, think about it. 
we we've never talked about having conversations where we say the male is competing in the female swimming event. We've never had conversations where we say he gave birth. But you have women who identify as males who, you know, are still giving birth. And so it's changed the way that conversation and even basic language has is being used. If you think about the progression of issues, especially on the secu- on the sexual front that intersects with local church realities, challenges, issues, topics. Um, you go back to the early 1990s, and uh, obviously homosexuality was on the national radar. Bill Clinton's elected president in 1992. Don't ask, don't tell. But still, that, that you know, a majority of Americans are clearly identifying and describing marriage as you know a covenant between a man and a woman. Of course, uh, 2004, President Bush runs re-election, and a part of his re-election strategy as it played out was that becoming a wedge issue in key swing states like Ohio, that, that marriage amendment being on the ballot. Then you get into a little later in, in, in 2008, Obama runs, is elected, so still arguing that marriage, there's something special about it as a spiritual union between a man and a woman. It's a public, public position. And then, of course, uh, wrap up to the 2012 re-election cycle and his vice president, then Biden, gets out ahead of the president a little bit and announces he supports same-sex marriage. And then, of course, Obama does. And here we are now, 10 years removed from that, where there's been seeming this cultural stampede towards not merely accepting but affirming. And opposing those like evangelical Christians who hold up their hands and say, wait a minute, that's not how God designed marriage. What do you make of that rapid transition culturally, socially? I think there are a few things going on. The United States passed a major social demographic uh, threshold in 2011 when for the first time the minority of people of marriageable age were not were married the majority were not married so marriage itself is becoming less important this is the outworking of the sexual revolution we've known for a long time that a high percentage of children are being born outside of wedlock this devaluing of marriage among heterosexual people gives sort of a blasé attitude towards same-sex marriage. If you're not even worried about getting married, then then why care? But some of this also, I think, is the eventual outworking in the school system of a long, slow drumbeat that has finally proved very successful teaching uh, really a teaching a really form of sexual autonomy that has finally gotten over the threshold and they moved ahead. There was a lot of pushback in the 70s and 80s, in many ways, the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention was a pushback on a lot of the sexual revolution. Well, they finally have gotten the the point of leverage in the school systems where things that parents would have opposed in 1978, they're granted in 2018. And so you have children kind of getting these ideas at younger and younger. And so I'm jumping back and forth from your 2022 to your sense of call to ministry, late 80s, entering seminary, roughly early 90s. Um, going back to, again, and you're not thought of a guy. I mean, you're not thought of a guy at all. We're here in the studio together. You're, 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 you're you know, still very much in the— um, I'm 54. Yeah, I mean, again, you're not that old. I mean, you're very much in the middle of life and ministry, and so we're not here as like octogenarians talking. We're, we're not. And so going back to um, late 80s, at the local church level, sexual issues and marital issues that show up in a way that is like, what are we going to do about this, tended to be the occasional issue of out of wedlock, birth, and divorce and remarriage more commonly, and then less commonly, but still there deal with the, the adulterous scenario. And those are real issues then. 
But the way things have changed so much since then, those still exist, but now you have the issues of same-sex marriage, issues, again, why be married in the first place, issues of human identity and sexuality. It's like it just keeps on layering on, layering on, layering on. And to speak to these things clearly, biblically, prophetically, puts one at odds with the culture. It does, and I think that's the big challenge pastors are going to face in the next 20 years, if they're facing next week, and that is if you want to win people to Christ, many people are saying we need to back off on these issues, and the way to win more people to Christ is to proclaim a less adamant message about these things and find some sort of workaround. I've I've already seen some well-known Christian names that have backed off on the issue of same-sex marriage and said all sorts of apologetic things. Well, first of all, let's be clear. A lot of Christians have said the right thing in quite the wrong way. So we all grant that. And we're never allowed the the freedom to be unkind or to be rude in what we say as Christians. But we do have a definite message. I'm, I'm waiting for the day that some megachurch pastor that has earned his stripes with some sort of conservatism is just going to flip-flop completely. And then when he does, he's going to get some talking points and others are going to come with him. That's just heresy. So how do we stand for the right thing in the right way? And we have to reposition the argument. What's happened is we live in a culture that if they have any ethics in their mind, it's some sloppy form of love. And For the average American, love just means you accept whatever someone does. Well, love always has boundaries. Love always has boundaries. Even a government that says they love their citizens has boundaries. You just can't go rob a bank. Every notion of love has boundaries. So what we have to do is reposition the argument and reframe it in such a way that we want people to know, yes, we love you, but love always has boundaries. doesn't mean that we hate you, but we do want you to know that God has certain parameters, and God's way is always best. Well said. Thinking about the topic of Christian ethics today, and again, building the conversation from your recent book, 50 Ethical Questions, and I'm trying to, 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 to channel us towards local church issues and local church topics that show up in the life of, of pastors and, and congregants. Um, let me ask the question this way for those listening. Why like pursue the discipline of ethics in the first place? For the local pastor? Yes. Because it's part of sanctification. And because the Bible does, how many of Paul's letters start with doctrine and end with ethics? And that's the theme throughout the Bible. How about the Ten Commandments? The first four commandments deal with us and God, and then the last six deal with us and other people. And there's an ethical overtone to the first four commandments, but really, once we have that vertical relationship right, it plays out in a horizontal relationship with other people. But even apologetically, Here in the United States, the first question most people ask if they say, why should I come to your church or I don't want to be a Christian, is usually not something about the Trinity. Now in a Muslim country, it would be different. But here in the States, the first question is not, why do you people believe in the Trinity? The first question is, why come you don't like abortion? How come you don't like homosexuals? So if you want to preach apologetically and give an informed response, then you need to study ethics. It was one of my first or second Sundays as a new pastor in seminary. And I was confronted with a little ethical question I wasn't expecting, but uh, about five minutes before the service was supposed to start, two ladies came up to me, and they were agitated, one with another. And they were agitated over the question whether or not, quote, we should sell chances in the church. And what they were talking about is some Lord, sort of little like raffle system for the, the youth, uh, youth program, summer camp program. And uh, honestly, I didn't really have a position on it then, but I realized I was going to have to come up with the position real quick-like. 
And uh, I remember they're kind of working through that, even those ladies in conversation. But I also remember thinking, boy, like, where did that come from? And again, going back, rewind the clock 20, 25 years, I think many of these ethical categories were clear and distinct. And this is what the church believes. This is what we do. That's what some members of the world believes. That's what some members of the world do who aren't in the church. And, and there's not a lot of category conflation. And so ethics at times could seem a little abstract, a little distant. But now I want to say, boy, it's not abstract at all. No, it's not. It, it, it's coming at you. And just like my little first pastor predicament over whether or not one should sell chances in the church, um, there are these issues coming at us and at ministers that we have to be able to give clear, biblical, cogent answers to. And we can't always predict when they're coming or from whom they're coming or how how fast they're coming. It's interesting you mentioned gambling. Let's use that as an example. Uh, prior to 1978, the only place you could gamble at was Las Vegas. And then when when gambling came to Atlantic City, it spread in, in between, filled up the rest of the nation pretty quickly. Someone has well said that prior to 1978, Atlantic City was a slum by the sea. Now it's a slum by the sea with casinos. Right, right. <laughs> gambling rarely solves anything. But I think that's right. There's been this big shift in our country on all sorts of these things. Um, and to try to get Christians to think about this is often – is often a challenge. I think when I, I look back on the ministry of someone like Billy Graham, if you look at what he and Carl F. H. Henry were trying to do through Christianity Today in its original format, they would address a lot of ethical issues in there. And of course, with Henry driving things, you got a lot of substantive chatter right. about what this, how we should think about different issues. For a lot of Christians, though, um, they weren't thinking clearly about sanctity of life. Dr. Allen, I love Dr. Criswell. I mean, I really I listened. To, I was listening to Dr. Criswell on a walk yesterday, but after the Roe v. Wade decision, he made some comments in Christianity Today. They're just shocking. Right? He was like, oh, well, you know, I don't think this is that big a deal. And he's basically saying that he didn't think he had personhood until after he was born. And I talked to some people that knew him back in the day, and he changed his mind. But a lot of it, he just had not thought about these things. And frankly, they thought, well, that's just a Catholic issue. How much better if Dr. Criswell had, had someone coach him up? 20 years earlier, say, hey, you need to think down the road about the sanctity of preborn human life and make sure that you're saying the right thing. Um, so I think try to get cult, to try to get pastors to think deeply and to think critically about what they're reading. And too often, especially with the social media, I run into pastors that are shaping their opinion off someone's tweet. And on these really, really important issues, and I, I put things on Twitter, but on these really important issues, you're going to have to think through it more than 240 characters. Right. And to learn to think substantively and to think critically and to analyze arguments and to tell folks, you know what, I'm going to think about that, I'm going to study it, and I'm going to get, a, get an answer. And the importance of working through these issues before they come to you with a real-life scenario, meaning if, if, if you don't begin to work out your view, let's say, of homosexuality— before your son or daughter shows up in your life and says, by the way, I'm gay, uh, if you don't have a position for that, you're probably just going to capitulate to whatever this person you care about says they believe or practice. Well, that goes back to this, the confused form of love. And agape, the Lord's love for us, is defined by the cross. Well, why did Jesus go to the cross? It's because of our sin. And what did Jesus teach about sin? He said, go and sin no more. So Jesus definitely had moral boundaries. And I think to help folks think through these confused forms of love and to think in a form of love that has moral boundaries that's grounded in the God of the Bible. 
And the God of the Bible always has moral boundaries. And to think about what it means to say, I love my child. Even more confusing is parents now who have a 12-year-old that suddenly says, well, I'm actually the opposite sex. And there are nations in the world that will, um, they are moving in the direction that they will remove the child from the home of the parent if the parent does not affirm this. So, I mean, it's getting more and more difficult for Christians. So how do we talk to our children and coach them up? Some of this is as parents as well. They're going to have to coach their children up in advance for things they're going to hear. So you're going to hear this in school. We want to prepare you in advance for what you're going to hear. And there's always an infinite power in being the first voice. What that shows the child is we are not afraid of these things. We're not intimidated by them. And there are robust biblical answers. I really think 50 Ethical Questions might be an interesting read for some parents with a 14-year-old during Bible study on a uh, Tuesday night at home to think about some of these things. Well, I concur with that. I think it certainly is. And so, Dr. Branch, I want to thank you for the book. Again, 50 Ethical Questions, Biblical Wisdom for Confusing Times, out with Lexham Press. And I want to thank you as well for the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.